Welcome to the Berkeley Journal of International Law's podcast, Trevo. I'm your host, Haley Duradawan, and this is The Current State. Hi, all. Welcome to the last episode of this season of Trevo. I have had an amazing time chatting with our Trevo contributors this season, and I cannot wait to be back in the studio, aka my living room, next semester. Now, let's turn to the reason you're all here to learn about a current event in international law. Today, I will be speaking with Nate Van Duzer on a topic that I am very eager to learn more about, the COP26 Climate Conference. Hi, Nate. Hi, Haley. So, Nate, can you tell us a little bit more about this conference? Yeah. So earlier this month, the International Climate Conference in Glasgow called COP26 wrapped up. And what you think about it really depends on your perspective. Global leaders have promoted the conference as a success, pointing to the new consensus agreement that came out of it from the 197 nations who were there, and also to a number of side agreements among major parties. But climate activists are less excited. Greta Thunberg, everyone's favorite teenage climate prophet, shared the opinion of many by labeling the conference a PR event full of, quote, business as usual and blah, blah, blah. And you can get a sense of these mixed feelings from the headlines in the press that came out after the event. So from the New York Times, negotiators strike a climate deal, but world remains far from limiting warming. From Bloomberg Law, Glasgow climate deal success hinges on pledges becoming action. Or from The Nation, COP26 ends with promises, but not nearly enough progress. So there's some controversy, nothing new to a climate conference, I imagine. Can you set the stage for the conference? How long have nations been gathering to address climate change like this? Sure. COP26 stands for the 26th Conference of Parties in the wake of the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Since the early 90s, the international community has held repeated conferences to make progress, or at least try to, on combating global warming. One early outcome of this framework, for example, was a 97 Kyoto Protocol, which set binding emissions targets on industrialized countries. And then the most notable recent summit was the 2015 Paris Agreement, which is a legally binding international treaty. Alongside some aspirational language, this agreement requires countries to prepare and submit a domestic target for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions every five years. And since it's been six years since Paris, many countries updated their submissions for their targets in the lead up to this year's conference. And then overall, the Paris Agreement set a target of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The bad news is we're a long way off from that. So a UN report this year calculated that under current conditions, the world is on track for a 2.7 degree increase, which would just be devastating to the planet as we know it. A separate group has looked at uh, the current commitments of countries, so not their current practices, but their targets, and determined that if the countries meet their 2030 targets, the result would be a 2.4 degree increase. So less than 2.7, but still well above that 1.5 degree goal. Here's the international law insight. Without binding commitments or penalties, climate pacts like the Paris Agreement often require more informal enforcement through things like peer pressure, example setting, and positive reinforcement. And one means of, I guess, maybe semi-formal enforcement includes litigation in domestic courts where advocates use or can use international climate agreements for things like defining a standard of care. And Columbia Law School's Sabin Center for Climate Change Law 
maintains a pretty extensive database of current climate change litigation efforts around the world. And if you're interested, I'd recommend exploring that. As you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not the conference was successful. What are global leaders saying post-COP26? So COP26 organizers point to several areas of the Glasgow Agreement as positive progress, including a heavier focus in the agreement on adaptation and the recognition that developing countries need much more financial support than they're getting. The main agreement contains language also related to carbon markets that had been uh, long disputed or fought over since the Paris Agreement. And the text contains the words fossil fuels for the first time in documents coming from a COP conference calling for, quote, the phase down of unabated coal power and phase out of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Climate hopefuls also point to numerous side agreements that arose uh, from the conference. More than 100 countries signed on to an agreement to halt and reverse deforestation by 2030. Similarly, more than 100 countries agreed on cutting methane emissions by the end of the decade. The U.S. and China announced a new agreement about how they will work more closely together on climate action. And India, another important player in this, also initiated a new pledge to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2070. At the end of the day, the conference president, Alex Sharma, summarized the conference by saying, quote, we can now say with credibility that we have kept 1.5 degrees alive, but its pulse is weak and it will only survive if we keep our promises and translate commitments into rapid action. And what are the activists saying? Well, they were not particularly impressed, to say the least. One organization called the outcome a compromise with catastrophe. In the final days of the conference, civil society participants in Glasgow staged a massive walkout, and the activist group called the COP26 Coalition released a statement in response to the final agreement that ends with, uh, and I quote, at COP26, the richest got what they came here for and the poorest leave with nothing. And on top of that, indigenous groups have characterized the conference as a death sentence. In coming to these conclusions, skeptics note that most of the promises from COP26 carry few details and action under these promises remains voluntary, which means that strong steps are kind of unlikely. For example, I mentioned the new deforestation agreement a minute ago. Activists were pretty quick to point out that this pact isn't really much different from a 2014 declaration, which failed to halt or even slow the destruction of forests in the past seven years. And while India announced a new climate goal early in the conference, it lobbied hard to water down the fossil fuel language in the late stages from phase out to phase down. And this particular last minute change left the conference president quote, deeply sorry, and uh, even near tears. Could you share with our listeners the core idea that you want them to take away from this podcast? Yeah. So it's pretty clear global leaders have much more work to do to hold themselves and each other accountable in their pledges. And if the world is to avoid the worst of climate change, I think those of us in civil society have to keep making this issue electorally and politically salient. In other words, the law can do some work here, but politics probably matters more. Thanks, Nate. I am significantly more informed on the COP26 conference than I was at the start of the episode, for which I thank you. As a reminder to those who have heard it before, and a heads up to our new listeners, Nate's full article can be found on the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travo. Thanks again for tuning in this season. See you in January. 
Thank you for listening. Travaux is brought to you by Haley Duradawan, Kayleen Kosla, and the members of the online team at the Berkeley Journal of International Law. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please write to us at berkeley.travaux at gmail.com. While we're committed to bringing you international and comparative law news and insight, our podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be current. Please check out the Berkeley Journal of International Law's blog, Travaux.